everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of Granite Town Media's Inside Milford. My name is Tim Finan, and I will be your host for today's episode. This week's guest is the director of the Milford Ambulance Service, Eric Shelberg. Eric has been the director of the Milford Ambulance Service for the past 22 years. During that time, Eric has seen a lot of changes at the Milford Ambulance Service. Once located in the cramped basement of Town Hall, Eric has had to deal with issues ranging from vehicles that could barely fit into the ambulance bays to fending off attempts at privatization, privatizing the agency itself. In 2012, Eric led a successful campaign to win voter approval for a new ambulance facility from which we are recording this podcast. Eric, thank you for coming. Thank you, Tim. Good Appreciate to be you here. coming in. So, um, if you don't mind, I wanted to start off a little bit about yourself. Can sure. you just talk a little bit how long? Um, I've known you for years, but I still don't know. Are you from Milford? Originally, no. I'm from New York, and I'm a transplant from Chelmsford, New Hampshire, back in 1973. Ah. So I've been here for, well, since 1973, 46 years now. Okay. And and they might call me a townie now. So I would think so, yeah. <laughs> so how long have you been with the ambulance service? I started with the ambulance service in December of 1984, so we're coming up on 35 years next month. I started out as a volunteer, obtained my advanced first aid uh, certification with oxygen and auto extrication. Those were the certificates that you needed. Started with the service and then became an EMT and shortly thereafter in May of 1985. Oh, so have you been has, have you been in Mil- professionally in Milford your entire career? My entire career. Oh. I did spend a year with Rockingham Ambulance uh, after I obtained paramedic certification in 1993 oh. as a per diem paramedic with them. But okay. otherwise, my entire career has been with Milford. i got to believe there's not too many that have been here longer than you. Uh, probably none. Not at this time. Not no. at this time. Uh, have you ever been with the fire department as well? Or are you now? I'm not even sure. So I was with the fire department um, on two different stents I, uh, for a total of 10 years. Um, I did obtain my Firefighter two certification. Um, but uh, approximately two years ago, I left just because there was I had too much activity in my life and running the ambulance service, so it was a little too much. Yeah, I, I, could see, I could see that. I didn't realize that you were with them that recently, as recently as two years ago. Yeah, two, three years, yeah. So um, could you give us a little bit of a history of the Milford Ambulance Service itself? Sure. You know, how far it goes back, what it, what it was like back then? Sure. So as I understand it from the history and uh, speaking with some of the founding members of this department, in 1972, late 72, early 73, a study committee was put together to look at uh, providing the town providing ambulance services. At that time, it had been provided through Smith & Heald and then also through a private company called United Ambulance Service. So Smith & Heald, you mean the, amb- the, uh, the funeral, funeral home across home. the street from here? Okay. Yep. And so they looked at that because there were some issues uh, and con- some concerns. I'm not sure what those were at the time. And this committee came together and got approval to start an ambulance service. Um, so in 1973, it was voted on um, to purchase two ambulances for the department, create the department, and it was staffed fully by all volunteers, um, advanced first aiders, and eventually the first EMTs uh, in this state uh, started here at Milford Ambulance Service. Really? I didn't know that. Yep. Hmm, interesting. So uh, 1973, you, you bought the ambulance. I'm just trying to think back. So those are probably the old... Station wagon ambulances, Well, right? actually, they were vans. Oh, they were vans, okay. Um, yep, they were um, Chevy vans that were purchased from, I think it was Draper Chevrolet here in town, um, and then they were converted by, I believe the company was Wheeled Coach, um, who modified the modified the vans for to be ambulances, and that's how we started. So, and then, uh, so you had said it was January 1st, 1974. Four was the first day of operation. And that was... Running since. And in that the was in town the, hall. Well, originally, uh, no, it was not. It was uh, in where 161 Bridge Street is now used to be the old DPW. There used to be the DPW building there, and that's where the ambulance service started out. When the fire station was completed in 1975, they moved out of the town hall, out of the basement of the town hall, and then the ambulance service moved into the former fire station in the basement of the town hall where we shared an ambulance bay, or there were three bays, Two of the bays were reserved for the ambulance service, and one bay was reserved for a police cruiser when the police department was still in the town hall. Hmm. So you said 160 Bridge Street? 161 Bridge Street. Where is that? What, what's there now? Right behind the fire. That's uh, an apartment complex that's right behind the fire station. Oh, so the senior homes right yep. back there, whatever it's called. I can't yep. think what it's called. Uh, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So I've already little, learned little something. A little bit of history here. We've been going here for 10 minutes. I've already learned something. So that, that's awesome. So then, so we fast forward, and then in um, 
Well, we'll talk. We'll talk about the new facility later. So, sure. so that's good. Okay. Can you? So, how? Talk a little bit about the organization of this agency. So, how, how does it? You're the director. So, how does it? How many employees do you have, and how does sure. it break down? That sort of thing. Sure. So, um, for total employees right now, we have 43 employees uh, that are on staff that comprises uh, full-time staff, part-time staff, per diem staff, and volunteers. And so our organization chart, if you will, starts with the director, myself, and then this year in uh, August timeframe, um, two captains, full-time captains were appointed. They were hired from within the ranks, so there were no additional personnel added um, who helped me run both the operations and the administration side. And then from there, uh, we have our full-time staff and the rest of the uh, staff who mans the ambulances. Uh, everybody on the department is a certified uh, paramedic, excuse me, is a certified national registry, either EMT, advanced EMT, or paramedic. Our staffing on a typical day is we run one ambulance 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with one paramedic, and usually it's an AEMT. We, our certification level, as I said earlier, is EMT, AEMT, and paramedic. Most of our staff is at the AEMT level. We have a couple of non-AEMTs, but all of them will eventually become AEMTs. So a non-AEMT is still an EMT, is just, still an EMT, just not advanced. Correct, not at the advanced level. And so we have that one ambulance 24-7, and then we run a second ambulance um, 16 hours out of the day from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. And that um, Monday through Saturday is staffed with a paramedic. And then on Sunday, we go down to... Um, AEMT certification. So on Sunday, we what we call is float the medic. Um, so what happens during that time frame is that if the first call comes out and it doesn't need the paramedic, the paramedic will come back and staff the second ambulance. Otherwise, they would go on the call, and then an AEMT level uh, would staff the second ambulance until the paramedic returned. So just so that people at home that may not know, in broad terms, what's the what's the difference between a paramedic and an EMT and sure. an EMT? So an EMT will uh, go through about 120 to 150 hours worth of class time. Uh, that starts uh, out with understanding uh, human anatomy, pathophysiology, how the body works, uh, limited uh, areas of that, wound care, splinting, um, cervical spine, immobilization, transportation, and some very limited assisted medications. An advanced EMT is the next level up, so they have to have the base level EMT understanding or knowledge and skill sets. And then we add on the ability to start IVs, uh, more pathophysiology, the ability to administer certain medications, and um, advanced um, pathophysiology, and some uh, advanced techniques. Um, from there, then you go to the paramedic level, and a paramedic level can start out with no EMT education and go through, um, usually it's an associate's degree program, a two-year program, but that program is, like I said, two years, or they can do a certificate program where they already have their EMT certification or advanced EMT certification, and that's roughly 15 months. That is by far and away um, above advanced EMT to the extent that there are advanced airway options, such as intubating. So if you were to go in for surgery and they put a breathing tube in, um, to advanced airway management techniques, advanced medications that are used. Um, there are approximately 35 medications in our formulary to include cardiac medications, respiratory medications, pain management. Um, additionally, a, a lot more pathophysiology and understanding of how the heart operates, how the body operates, cellular level activities to better appreciate uh, what's wrong with the patient and how to treat them appropriately. So that's why you said you might get to a scene and you assess it and the paramedic's not necessary, so you send him back. Correct. That, that makes a lot of sense. So somebody with a sprained ankle, we're not necessarily going to use that limited resource for that patient who may not need anything really at the paramedic level let the AMTs take care of that patient. And in the event there's a severe respiratory for the next call that may come up, they're available for that. Does the paramedic, oh, I know there's a separate vehicle for a paramedic. Does the paramedic always travel separately or do they, do they staff the ambulance? So again, depending on the staffing, um, as I said, Monday through Saturday for the first 12 hours of our shifts, we have two paramedics on. So each paramedic would go in their respective ambulance if a call came in. It's when we're on that Sunday or during our um, day, uh, excuse me, our evening sessions from uh, 7 p.m. to 11 p.m., 
when there's only one paramedic on. They will then go to a call in the cruiser. We have what's called a paramedic response vehicle. The ambulance will go out. Three people will go out. Assessment will happen. And then if the paramedic doesn't go, they come back in the cruiser. Otherwise, if the paramedic goes, the paramedic will go on the call in the ambulance. And then one of the other crew members will come back in, in the cruiser. So we're not putting two ambulances on the road. We're just putting the paramedic response vehicle on. You've got this all figured out. We've tried. It's like yes. a chess game. It's yeah. <laughs> Some days it is. So you, you also mentioned volunteers and per diem. What's the difference between that? So a per diem employee is someone that is not regularly scheduled but fills in when one of our paid staff is out, be it a paramedic or one of our AEMTs. So we're always trying to make sure that we're filling our schedule. And since 2016, July of 2016, we have done that. Our volunteer staff again, are not regularly scheduled, and they can pick up a shift as they as they so choose and as their schedule allows them to do. So volunteer is per diem? They are like a per diem, but a per diem is specifically paid to cover a shift. A volunteer is not paid. Okay, so so you do have volunteers that just come in out of the goodness of their hearts. Correct. Give back to the community or... You, uh, you, you mentioned earlier that yourself, that you, had, uh, that you used to be over at the fire department as well. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot of cross-pollinization? Or, actually, maybe we start with, does the fire department themselves have any paramedics or EMTs? So as I understand it, yes, they, they do have one paramedic on. All of their full-time staff has to be at the EMT level at a minimum, as well as they have several call members who are also EMTs as well. That's interesting. I didn't know that. So will they actually perform the function of an EMT at a call if so, you are there, or how, how does that work? So there are certain calls. So the ambulance service is routinely dispatched by itself on medical calls. There are certain calls that they will automatic, the fire department will automatically be dispatched to. That includes automatic cardiac arrest or any what we call a life-threatening uh, incident that they will automatically be dispatched to. Any EMT or any EMT who shows up on those scenes will assist the ambulance service in taking care of that patient. On a medical call, the ambulance service will have the lead. The fire department will assist. Or if it's a mutual aid call where we have mutual aid coming in because both of our ambulances are are tied up on calls, if there's an EMT present, they will start initiating uh, care to the patient to help stabilize um, and then get ready for the transporting service to come in to assist them in getting the patient out. If it is a, we'll say a cardiac arrest call, fire department uh, responds in, um, we will take at least two of their providers and all of their staff is at least CPR certified. We will take them with us to help uh, do CPR. So we need a CPR call is very labor intensive. And so we need somebody to drive the ambulance. The paramedic will be running the call. Um, and then initiating medications, advanced electrical therapy as necessary, and then two other providers will be, or in this case we're saying it's the fire department staff, will be assisting with um, compressions and ventilations. All right, good. So let's talk a little bit about the facility now. So as, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've been in here since 2013, is that right? December of 2013, so, we moved in. So how's, how's it working out? The facility has worked out fantastic. Right. It has been great. Um, no gremlins, no nothing that we have. We have one little gremlin that we can't shake down, and that's the lighting system, uh, the automatic lighting system in the ambulance bay, uh, where the vehicles are kept. Um, the light won't turn out. There's automatic sensors that it, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. We've tried for years to try and find it. We just can't find it. So we manually go in and turn those lights off. That's otherwise, the otherwise the facility has been great. Very few issues. It was built on time, under budget, has met our expectations. And every time I talk about this building, I give kudos to the building committee that assisted me in uh, building this facility from contract generation through keeping an eye on the contractors, making sure that what we spec'd was put in there through the end. And this facility has been, is wonderful. In fact, we've been received many compliments from organizations, uh, EMS and fire organizations that come in and say this this facility is was well thought out. And as I said, it's no issues. It's been a great facility. So, so can you just briefly co- uh, compare and contrast with what you used to have so folks know sure. the difference? So being in the basement of the town hall, um, we were there for until 2013. Our bays were limited in size. The door width was approximately 103 inches, I believe. 
uh, oh no, it was less than that. It was, excuse me, about 94 inches wide, if that. And then the door height was about 103 inches. So what that means is that we were limited to the size of the ambulance we could purchase. A van, or what we had at the time before, uh, while we were there and we moved out, was what we called a Maju van. The ambulance was only 80 inches wide. The mirrors, the side rearview mirrors, had to actually be moved in to fit through the old bay doors. We had roughly an inch and a half of clearance on either side. And the top had about five inches of clearance, but when you backed in, we were backing in at an angle, an up angle, so the tail, the top of the ambulance, would clear by about two inches going through. So if the door adjusted on its own, moved down on its own, which happened from time to time, we would bang that bottom panel of the door. Um, we could only fit the two ambulances in there after the building had been renovated in 1988. We couldn't open up the side doors completely without hitting the other ambulance. We couldn't pull a stretcher out and walk behind the ambulance. And we only had two rooms for dormitory space that would sleep. One room slept two, the other one slept three. A lot of people would sleep just on the couches in the center. We didn't have a kitchen table. Uh, we had a very small kitchen. And then the office areas were removed from the, from the secure side. So we were kind of spread out. We had roughly 2,900, excuse me, we had roughly 3,300 square feet uh, in the old building in the town hall. Coming over here, we moved into 8,200 square feet of room. We had a dedicated, we now have a dedicated training and community room in the, where we're sitting right now, which the community room is used every week. There is a group in here every week using this room and sometimes two and three times a week. It's not uncommon. So the ambulance bay, and just to go back to that, the business end of our department, if you will, the bay itself is 2,900 square feet. So literally it's greater than three quarters of what we had in the previous building. It now houses or has the ability to house four vehicles. We have three ambulances, of which two are frontline ambulances, and we have a backup ambulance. And we have the paramedic response vehicle, which is all housed in the bay. Plus we have dedicated parking. We have six individual bunk rooms, as well as we have three showers or three um, three-quarter bathrooms, a full kitchen with a with a uh, table, so we can actually break bread in the kitchen, and then we have dedicated office space. So we have the ability to run and run an incident, like a um, ice ice storm type incident or something of that nature. We can dispatch ourselves if necessary, so we can back up our dispatch center, and it's just a a very nice functional facility. I'm sure the staff must must love it. They absolutely do. Now you mentioned the bunks, and you also mentioned earlier, if I got it right, when you're talking about the st- the shifts. I think you said 11 to 7 is one of them. So the second ambulance runs from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. Okay. And the first ambulance runs around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So we always have at least two people sleeping here. So they're actually okay. So that's what I was getting at. Is that just for napping, or actually people sleep here? So the overnight shift will sleep here. Okay. And so yes, there are times when somebody comes off a previous shift and they'll come in, or they're getting ready for their next shift. They may go into a bunk room and take a nap just to get ready and refreshed. So was there anything in the, the that we missed in the new facility? Um, no, for the most part, I think we did very well with that. Um, it's just those. It's those little things, like in this room, for instance, the lights at the front of the room, we can't turn them off. So that if we're showing something up on one of the television screens or the projector screen, it sometimes still gets washed out. So it's one of those, oh, I wish we had thought about being able to turn that bank of lights off versus having... That can be fixed. Right. But those are little things that, you know, you go forward and say, oh, if we ever do this again, which is not going to happen in my (laughs) career. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned that the four bay are, are... The four bays all the same size? All four bays are the same so size. So you could go four ambulances if you ever had to someday and, in the future. And that was part of the thinking with building this facility was understanding that it was going to be a 30-year facility. Having worked in this town for many years, this is going to be a 50, 60, 100-year facility. And I don't know what's going to happen 10 years down the road, let alone 30 years down the road. So to be able to, if we're going to have the four bays, build it out so that if things were to change, we could easily accommodate it without having to add on. So take care of the $50,000 cost now versus $500 plus down the road. All right, so let's talk a little bit about vehicles. Sure. I do want to spend a little bit of time on this because I believe you're going to be, you're hoping for a warrant article this year. Correct. I know we're in the in middle of the process, yep. so, so we'll, we'll see. So we currently have two frontline names. Why don't you describe your fleet Sure. And how okay. that works? So 
As I said earlier, we have three, vehicle, uh, three ambulances in our fleet. We have two 2013 ambulances, which we purchased, obviously, in 2013. They went in service in December of 2013. So they've been on the road for just shy of six years now. And we have a backup ambulance, which is a 2001 ambulance, which we purchased from the town of Wilton for a dollar because they purchased my 1999 ambulance for, a, oh, excuse me, my, my 2003 ambulance for a dollar. They traded that in and got a 2014 ambulance. I ended up with a vehicle that had 40,000 fewer miles on it, and it was a full-size box, what we are currently running with our 2013s. It has worked out great for us. I say that especially for this year because one of our 2013 ambulances, the what we call the 3A, um, actually had a remanufactured engine put in it last month. And I was going to ask you about that because I just heard about that the other night. So last year, in 2018, uh, the number nine cylinder lost its spark plug. It actually was combusted out of, the, out of the cylinder head. That was repaired, and then we ran it for another roughly 14, 15 months, and it did it again. At this point, it damaged the engine to the point that it was more appropriate to replace the engine with a remanufactured engine than to turn around and try and refix it. So we replaced that engine. It took a month. So that frontline vehicle was out of service for a month. The whole purpose of having a backup ambulance was in the event that we took an ambulance out of service for maintenance, typical oil change or something else happened where it was going to be out of service for either a day or two days, this actually will protect the call volume for the department, i.e. in the sense that we will still be able to run our two ambulances, not bother our mutual aid partners to come in, and then also at the same time, while we're not looking to make money, we are looking to generate revenue on our transports, that it would protect that revenue. Our revenue stream is very important and is a significant amount of, in fact, it represents roughly 12 to 13 percent of the total non-taxable revenue the town generates. So it's a significant amount of money. So by having an, a spare ambulance that costs us very little to maintain over the course of the year, a couple hundred dollars maybe for an oil change, a tire rotation, and some fuel, we have a full, fully staffed front, or excuse me, we have a fully equipped ambulance ready to go to back up one of the frontline ambulances. So what I'm looking to, and the other two, we have two other vehicles in the fleet, if I may just finish off on that. We have our paramedic response vehicle, which is a 2010 Ford Explorer that we obtained from the police department. It's a hand-me-down. Uh, that runs as the paramedic response vehicle for the paramedic to run to calls or if we need to do a mutual aid intercept or something of that nature. And then there's a vehicle issued to me as the director that I use on a daily basis, but also it serves as a backup for the paramedic response vehicle. And that's a 2013 police interceptor vehicle that we purchased uh, from a um, dealer in Massachusetts. So all of our vehicles are in good shape. They're running well. We are looking in 2020 to procure a replacement ambulance for the 2001 ambulance. The objective being is that we want to have always a backup ambulance. The 3A was scheduled to go out. Um, it had 161,000 miles on it. When, what do you mean it was scheduled to go out? So 3A, so the, 3A is the first one out now, right? Correct. So we run the 3A out as our... So let me, let me back up on that. We alternate the ambulances going on calls when we have two crews on. But then during the overnight, when there's only one staffed ambulance up, the 3A runs as the first out ambulance. We're doing that to try and separate some of the mileage since they both came in at the same time with zero miles. We're trying to separate out the mileage so that what the objective is to take the, the ambulance with the most mileage on it and put it into the backup role and go to a five-year replacement cycle. So initially, yes, we'll have an ambulance that will go out after 10 years or actually after seven years now or almost eight years of service. But the objective was that every five years we would replace an ambulance and they would just rotate through the fleet. So what we're talking about here is the 3A, would, if it gets replaced, will go to the backup role. The 3B will run as the first out ambulance during the overnight as well as alternating with the new ambulance. And then five years after that, the 3B... The 3A would go out of the service, would leave the service, the 3B would go on backup, 20, the 2020 ambulance would move up, and then the 2020, what will be the 2023 ambulance, if we stick to our schedule, will then move in. And then every five years, we're going to start replacing an ambulance. Okay, so, so, so if, you get, if the warrant article this year passes, that's going to replace the 2001 spare. So that's gone. correct. That you know, will leave trade the fleet. it in or do something with it. Yep. Sell, sell it to Wilton for two dollars this year, maybe. <laughs> um, so then three A will become the second out. 
So what, because the engine got replaced and the, basically the 3A has a new motor in it, that will then, re, instead of it going into the backup roll, the 3B, which now has a, almost 108,000 miles, I believe, on it, will go into the backup when roll. When you say backup, do you mean spare? Or the do spare. You, you mean the spare? The, the spare third, ambulance. The third That's, one. Yep. We'll only get we pressed in the service. We have to naming these ambulances differently because it gets very confusing. <laughs> so 3A you so, just, will become the spare? Did you just say that? No, the 3B now, 3B because of the will. engine motor, changed to the 3A. The 3B will move to backup. The 3A will be will continue to remain the first ambulance out, and the 2020 will go Got it. as a frontline ambulance, but will alternate calls. But at night, we'll just during the overnight, we'll sit in the bay. So once this all settles out, <clears throat> you, you hope to have three ambulances on a five-year plan. Correct. So then, I, mean, I guess it's semantics, but once you get to that point, we really are a three-ambulance service, right? It's not really a spare anymore because... Well, we won't be staffing the third ambulance. So the backup ambulance will, is not going to be staffed. It okay. is strictly when one of the frontline ambulances goes down for maintenance, and then we put it into service. Or, and on, on seven occasions this year, we actually surged the backup ambulance. And by that I meant, I mean that we had two people, two EMTs, who could take a third call. And so a call came in, we had staff here, we called our dispatch center and said, hey, listen, instead of sending mutual aid, we've got a crew for the third ambulance and we'll put what we call 20A3 up. So on occasion, we've been able to actually surge it because it's fully equipped and licensed at the paramedic level. That sounds good. So it allows for greater flexibility with the operations. So you, you hope that's gonna be on the warrant article in March of 2020? Correct. Do you, do you have a number yet? So. The Warren article at this point, in the sense of, I don't have, a number hasn't been put forward uh, for official Warren article, but what has been baselined in the CIP is $296,000. But that also includes, as well as an ambulance, it includes a new cardiac monitor, a LifePak 15 cardiac monitor, and a new powered stretcher. The 2001 ambulance has a, what we call a LifePak 12 cardiac monitor, which is a second generation. It is considered obsolete and non-repairable. It still functions, it still tests fine, but as soon as it no longer does that, it goes out of service. Additionally, the stretcher that we have is what we call a, a man and a half stretcher. It's all manually operated, so two people have to lift it up and put it into the ambulance versus powered stretchers that we have in our frontline ambulances. So that, um, the cardiac monitor is roughly $39,000 and the stretcher is $20,000. So we have those extra pieces of capital equipment to build into the Warren article itself. And we're now in the process of uh, interviewing and getting ready to send out a bid spec for uh, an ambulance. We have roughly $75,000 in the capital reserve account at this time. So I'd be advocating for using some of that money to help offset the entire cost and then raise an appropriate either solely as a purchase, and this is all dependent on what the selectmen would like to do, mm -hmm. either raise an appropriate 190-some-odd thousand dollars at one time or maybe a five-year, three-year, five-year lease purchase. Got it, got it. So what about the other two vehicles, the paramedic and the directors? Do you put that in your budget, or would you expect to ask for something at some point? Well, that's, that's under um, 75000 so it doesn't meet the CIP threshold, so mm -hmm. that would probably be a budget item and or a standalone warrant article when we uh, look to replace that. But that wouldn't be until 2021-2022 on the um, 2010 PRV. All right, good. So training. So what sort of training, um, I guess, what's required of you and, and what do you do for sure. training? So our baseline certification for the EMT, AEMT, or paramedic, you have to have that walking in the door. And so to be licensed in the state of New Hampshire to practice medicine, well, to practice medicine in the state of New Hampshire, you have to be licensed. And so to get your license, you have to have one of those three minimum certifications, at least for here for Milford Ambulance. And then every two years, every EMT has to recertify. And so there is a specific set or criteria of education that must be met for the National Registry, our certification body. And so we train on that throughout the course of that two years. Now. Every year we're putting roughly half of our uh, service through recertification. So we are always making sure that we have a rolling um, education schedule. There are certain specific criteria of training that we have. For instance, this department is also considered a rapid, or we are certified as a rapid sequence intubation or RSI department, 
one of roughly 11 or 12 in the state. Not everybody gets to use these medications or to be able to practice these advanced airway management techniques. And just a brief uh, discussion of that, rapid sequence intubation basically is if you were to go in for surgery, then what you're going to do is they're going to induce you, they're going to give you a medication that puts you in la-la land, and then they're going to paralyze you. So basically, they're going to take away your ability to breathe. And so if you can't breathe, we have to breathe for you. So this is a very uh, rapid technique where we have to uh, induce you, put you under, and then paralyze you. So that relaxes you. We then open, open up your airway, and we put an endotracheal tube into your airway. So that it's a breathing tube. All of our staff, all of our only paramedics can use those medications and actually perform those techniques. Additionally, every member of the department has to be, who are not paramedics, have to be what we call RSI assistants, so that they have to understand what the paramedic is going to be doing. They don't need to, they're not going to be drawing up the medications or administering the medication, but they need to know what the, uh, what the steps are and to be able to assist the paramedic in providing that service or that skill. So all of our department goes through that annually. Every two years, our paramedics go through that training recertification. In fact, we just did it at uh, the beginning of last, uh, last month, excuse me, last week. We also do what's called surgical crikes. In other words, if, we, if that airway has failed, that we cannot get that through RSI, or somebody has such a significant facial injury that we cannot gain access, we will actually then, with a scalpel, cut a hole in their neck and go through their cricothyroid um, membrane and put a breathing tube in. So these are very intense high, uh, low frequency, high risk skill sets that are going to make you shake when you do this. So we train on this and we prepare for this. Um, additionally, we do a lot of airway management, cardiac arrest management, and then we go through, we also put together uh, monthly trainings. In fact, we just did ours this morning for hypothermia and suctioning. So how do, you know, this is the time of year where we're going to see hypothermia. Yeah. So good idea to get on top of that. Uh, just refresh that and different suctioning techniques and different uh, equipment that we use in suctioning. So we do a lot of training throughout the course of the year. Do you do this training? Uh, I guess a couple questions. Uh, do we pay for the training for all these people? So the training is paid for. Yep. Okay. And we have, we have three instructor coordinators on staff. Two of our instructor coordinators are our primary uh, trainers where they develop that training and then they administer the training and then uh, we have a clinical educator who is one of our captains who is responsible for the overall training regime for the department so creation of and delivery we also we will become a uh, NAEMT site for PHTLS and TECC those are advanced courses they're 16-hour courses that we are now offering that out to um, other EMTs who want to take those programs so we are we have a separate training division, if you will, that allows individuals from the outside to come in and they pay for those courses so that doesn't cost the town anything. It is fully funded itself. And so we have those trainings for our staff and then we also offer it to the outside. Do we offer it to the other emergency services in town? or do If you they would like to attend, they can come on over. Yep. And in do, fact, do you do a couple. Much of this, is this done? Like, I don't know about RSI is probably... RSI is, is specific to a department, so yeah. Good. But um, some of the other training sounds like the, like the EMTs of the fire department. Yep, <clears throat> and, we, and we offer it out. In fact, our, our last PHDLS course, I know at least two, maybe even three of the fire, depart fire department members as part of their recertification came in for it. Great. So. All right, finances. <laughs> I went to look up the budget, this, and, and I, I, I didn't get to it. I wanted to look it up before I got here. But, uh, so it, without getting into too much of you, approximately what is your budget for the general fund expense? So... Our budget that the department specifically abdicates for is this year, I want to say, was we were in the $285,000 range. Excuse me, $785,000 range. That Excuse sounds me. really good. $785,000 range. That is what the department specifically goes for. But there are f uh, several other components that make the ambulance service. So we also have our debt service for the facility, which we are, we have 16 more years on that. Excuse me. We have 14 more years of payments on that, so our mortgage is for another 14 years, roughly. Mm -hmm. We also have, we just finished up the lease this year, the lease payment for the two 2013 ambulances. So those are going by the wayside, and that was at $48,000. We also have our benefit-related expenses for our employees. That's carried in the administration budget. And then there's also 
to turn the lights on in this facility and heat it and cool it. That's in the DPW budget. So specifically, that comprises the entire ambulance, what, what it costs to run the ambulance service. So we talked earlier about revenue. This year, we're looking at bringing in a roughly $806,000 in revenue, roughly. So that should offset the entire ambulance service budget. Uh, excuse me, I take that back. 785 was the previous year. This year, we're at eight, and we're at like 865. We're around there. For budget or for, for revenue? For budget and okay. revenue, we're looking at 806. Okay. So it's going to be roughly $60,000 to run the ambulance service, just the operating budget. So to put gas in the vehicles, mm-hmm. the supplies, and the, and the uh, salaries. So that the department has done well with its revenue collection. We are looking at possibly changing vendors to do a better job of collecting even more revenue. But there are many factors that go into our revenue generation. There are four payer types that we look at, and those are the individuals that are covered by commercial insurance, individuals that are covered by Medicare, individuals covered by Medicaid, and the uninsured. Depending on that payer category mix will determine our revenue stream. Medicare and Medicaid are fixed, i.e. in the sense of there's a fixed amount that they're going to pay us regardless of what we charge. So if we say we charge $1,000, and I'm just using that as an example, Medicare says that, okay, we're only going to pay you $600 for that call. So that $600, that $400 difference is automatically written off. We cannot go after the patient for it. It is gone. We just Is it actually it. booked somewhere as a write-off? It's so, booked as a write-off, okay. correct. Then Medicare will only pay 80% of that 600 that they approved. So they pay us 80% of that, and then the patient is then responsible for the remaining balance. Most times they have a, a, a Medigap insurance, and then we'll turn around and bill that and collect that. Medicaid is unfortunately very difficult. They're, the maximum that we'll receive is $185 on that $1,000 bill. So we are then writing off basically $815. Now, I know that you made up that away. number, but is that scale close to it? Is it like 10%? Fairly, yeah. Wow. Okay. It's, it's very low for Medicaid. And then commercial insurers, depending on if you're a high deductible plan, depending on your plan, they'll either pay the whole amount or a par- portion of that amount. And then the uninsured, uh, we get very little money from the uninsured, understandably, but and that for the most part, it ends up just getting written off or goes to bad debt. So, so how do you handle that? Do you, so I assume you do bill them. So everybody, we're required to bill everybody. That's a requirement of the federal Medicare program. You must bill everybody. So we bill them. They then get three statements, and then anybody who doesn't pay either contacts us and we make arrangements with them. So if there's a hardship case, we will review it through our write-off committee, which consists of the town administrator, the finance director, and there's usually a selectman representative who sits in on the meeting. I will abdicate on behalf of the person requesting the hardship, tell them the history of it, and they'll either write it off or not, or we'll reduce the amount or ask for payments. If it is somebody that just doesn't even contact us, then it will go to our collection agency and it will sit in collections. We get some collections, usually it's somebody who's applying for a loan of some sort because it's hit their credit history that they'll say, oh, can I pay this off tomorrow? Sure. And you can do that, and we'll turn around and tell the collection agency they paid it. But mm-hmm. so uh, okay, so you said you get revenues of about eight hundred k. Is that actual revenue? Or does that include the write-offs? That's no, that's actual, actual re- revenue. So that's how much? Approximately how much do you write off? So year? we write off uh, over forty percent, um, roughly forty three percent of what we bill what out. Bill. So we're billing out roughly. I think this year we're looking at projected at billing out a little over one point three million dollars. Wow, that's a lot. Is, is that a lot. is that typical? I mean, I imagine you talk to other directors. Yeah. So industry standard is roughly anywhere from fifty-seven to sixty-three percent of what is collected, and that's why we're looking at a new vendor because we think they have other activities that I believe will help generate a little bit more revenue. And so, with that said, the more that we can bring in and offset our budget, you know, the more the less it is on the tax base. Now, you you said that you. You have to bill every call. Do you have well, like every a, every transport? Every transport. Okay, because so, that was my question. I, I, what do you do for case? I got to imagine you get calls from I don't know. I, I don't want to call it nuisance calls, but I get somebody. 
you know, can't get out of their chair, you know, sure. something like that. So, well, let, well, for example, last night we had a lift assist where somebody had slid out of their chair. They weren't able to get up off the floor. Okay. Okay. So we go for that. We go and we assist the patient. We assess them, make sure that they're not injured and verify that they are okay. And if they want to go to the hospital or not, offer them that opportunity. If they decline, they'll sign a refusal and we leave. We do not bill for non-transports. And another one that in so that person specifically requested us. But the other example that I like to use is that a good Samaritan's driving by, sees a minor motor vehicle accident, calls it in. The question is asked, is there injury? And the person says, I don't know. So as a precaution, we get dispatched. We show up. It's a minor fender bender. Sure enough, nobody's hurt. We shouldn't have been dispatched in the first place. But understanding that somebody called it in, we have a responsibility to make sure everything's okay. Why should I bill two people who don't need my services, who didn't even request us? It's been, it's a philosophical question that has been debated from time to time. Do we have a minimum charge, $100, $150, or something of that nature? My philosophy is the taxpayers pay for this. We try and generate as much revenue as possible through our transports. Sometimes we should just, yep, that's a good service. So in that example, though, if, if those... The two people in the accident, the two vehicles, if they didn't, if there was no transport, what would you have billed anyway? I mean, would you, because you said you only bill for transports. Correct. So okay. if we don't transport somebody, we don't bill. Okay. Nobody receives a bill. And that's even if you perform, do you ever perform um, medical procedures and not transport? Like Correct. a kid twists his ankle at a baseball game? Sure. Yep. We come out, we evaluate, then we're not going to, if we and don't transport... Don't. Right. Or if it's, for instance, uh, somebody who's hypoglycemic, low blood sugar, and they truly have their hypoglycemic, we treat them. We start an IV. We give them D10 to bring their sugar levels up. They come back and say, oh, hey, welcome. I'm back here. And they say, no, I'm fine. I know what the problem is. I know I I gave myself extra insulin today and didn't eat on time. My schedule got off or something of that nature. If they are of sound mind and can make that decision, they can refuse. We don't bill for that. So and those lot, are few and far yeah. between. So. so in a lot of senses, that's, that's no, no different than police or fire. I mean, if, if, if police come to help me get the cat out of the tree, they don't yep. charge me. Correct. Same thing with the fire department, you know, they don't charge. So it's the same thing unless you do transport. So that makes sense. Correct. That makes a lot of sense. And reserve, okay, you already mentioned the, res- the capital reserve fund. Do you just have the one capital reserve fund for We vehicles? just have the one capital reserve fund for the ambulance, which just started up, I want to say it was three years ago that we reintroduce capital reserve for um, fire apparatus, ambulance. We start a new one for uh, communications. Uh, we did one for assessing town hall maintenance, or the facility maintenance, DPW, and I want to say there were two others, one or two others. But yes, we only have the one capital reserve fund for the All ambulance right. service. Yeah, I had this other question here. Do you ever see the day when the service will be self-financing? But it sounds like you're virtually there, at least the operations. From the operations side, yes. We are very close. And, in fact, one year we actually were in the black, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have kept our cost to the town under $100,000. But we also were behind in our rate structure. And I've worked slowly with the selectmen to try and increase that. Um, I'll be coming back to the selectmen, or at least that's my intent, in April to do it again. Uh, Just a minor increase again, just to try and keep up with the costs of running the department. I don't know if we ever will, but that's all based on call volume. That's the other thing. If we, you know, the more calls we have, the more likely we are to transport, then the more revenue we can generate. So while we don't want to see anybody get hurt or injured, but the more calls that we respond to in transport, we can generate more revenues to offset our cost. So Now, has the closure of the ambu- the ER at uh, St. Joe's made a big difference? So it, it actually did, surprisingly. And it, it did so in the reverse direction of what I was anticipating. So um, prior to them changing from emergent care to urgent care, we were responding roughly one call a day. We would do about 30, 32 calls a month out of the facility. When they converted, it literally dropped off by 60%. And it has not yet recovered to getting back to 30, even though their census or the daily number of patients they see has gone up. Uh, we have not recovered that volume. We're down about, we're down, we do about 18 to 20 calls a month out of the medical center. All depends on the clientele that they get that day uh, and the specific complaints that they have. But we did see a drop off in that. But we have seen increases in other areas that we're running 
this will be the third year, or excuse me, fifth year in a row that we'll be hitting 2,000 calls in a year. So that was actually my next question was about, about your call volume. So I think I got this from your, your newsletter. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it looks like you're running um, 180 about a yep. month, somewhere around that. Yep, about 165 to 180, somewhere in that ballpark. Every month is a little different. Some months are going to be heavier. Some months are going to be lighter. But we're annualizing out at about um, just over 2,000 calls a year. Hmm. And that graph or those those numbers do not include the mutual aid that comes into our community. So this year, I think we're up to almost 70, maybe even 80 mutual aid calls coming into the community because both of our ambulances were out on calls at the time. So you can add another easily 60 calls to okay, so, our annual volume. So that's mutual aid that comes you know, into Wilton assist. coming here to Wilton, Amherst, Brookline, Hollis. Yep. Okay. No, that's interesting. I didn't didn't realize it was that much. Do um, speaking of mutual aid, do we service other towns often? Yep. So unfortunately, uh, it used to be a two to one ratio, roughly where they would come in twice as often as we would provide service to them. But this year's numbers, the last last year and a half, the numbers are really getting skewed that we're seeing more mutual aid into our community than we're providing to them. We are looking at options right now that I've briefed the town administrator on and that will eventually get up to the Board of Selectmen to help reduce that number. It will not involve any funding. Um, it's just an operational change that we're looking at to help reduce the impact on our mutual aid partners. Yeah, I find so. that really interesting because we're, the, we're the, big, the big town in the area, so I would think it would be the opposite. Well, so if you... so. All the services around have two ambulances. And so, so Amherst has two ambulances. Um, Brookline and Wilton each have two ambulances. If you take their annual volume, the three services, and add that up, that will e- that is equal to what Milford does in a year. Okay. So Amherst okay. does roughly half of our volume. Wilton does roughly a quarter of our volume. And Brookline is an eighth of our volume they're 250 to 300 calls a year hmm. so we because we have such significant volume uh, we unfortunately are having more times when we need to call in our mutual aid partners so you could make an argument that we need three fully staffed ambulances um, you may not want to make it but it sounds like actually uh, tim no i don't I, I don't have the justification for an extra and let's just say it's 100 calls for 100 calls throughout the course of a year is going to cost, for, for an ambulance, it's going to cost another $400,000. I can't justify $400,000 for 100 calls. I can look at operational changes, and that's what we're doing right now, and we're r- literally on the verge of announcing that change to help offset that impact. But if our call volume does continue to go up, yeah, there comes a point where we have to evaluate that. Are there any parts of town like way west towards Wilton that are always mutual aid? I mean, no. We, no, no, okay. We, it, the mutual aid is divide. We actually divide our mutual aid up based on, if you will, West Street, which is pretty much in the geographic center of the town. Um, so anything that's west of West Street, Wilton will be called for. And anything that's east of West Street, Amherst will get called for. And if it's north of, uh, I can't remember the particular point on South Street, Brookline will come in. Unfortunately for Amherst, and it's just the ge- geography of the town, but the Milford Medical Center and Ledgewood Bay, 43 Ledgewood Bay, 161 Bridge Street and 40 Bridge Street, who call us frequently, is in that sector that's covered by Amherst. So mm-hmm. Amherst has really been taking the brunt of our mutual aid. The other way that we operate this is that if we have mutual aid coming in, we don't want to strip one town of both of their ambulances. So say Amherst comes in, for one call, then we're going to find another mutual aid partner to come in for the next call because we want to make sure that the geographic area still has ambulances to cover their respective communities as well. But if somebody who lives, I'm trying to think of which would be, whether it be t- towards Amherst or probably towards Wilton. I'm not 100, is the Wilton Ambulance Service downtown Wilton? Uh, they're just about a mile outside of the So like if you're down by where the new Dollar Tree is going in, right? Right down mm-hmm. by the, you know... W- wouldn't it make more sense to dispatch Wilton rather than well, us? Oh, um, right, if someone, well, it's our community. So believe it or not, in the time frames, we can, it's a straight shot. We can make those time frames quicker than, um, than uh, Wilton could. Okay. So our, our, our response time is very good. It's, 
it's well under five minutes from the time of dispatch to the time we're on scene. For the whole town? Uh, for the, well, Most, there are some areas average, of town that, you know, average. you're talking seven, eight minutes. You're talking out at the end of Mile Slip Road right. or, you know, out there. Yeah, it's going to take a few minutes. But because our staff is in-house and, we, and for where we're located, we're pretty much in a decent area. So, so what type of calls are the most frequent? I mean, are there? Uh, there's really no rhyme or reason. Uh, I would say medical calls are most prevalent, and those run the gamut of chest pains, difficulty breathing, um, seizures, and and we have our you know a fair share of traumas. Somebody who's you know fallen down, hit their head, something of that nature, and motor vehicle crashes. Do you have many ODs, drug calls? So back about three years ago, when fentanyl started to be introduced into the heroin and her- the heroin uh, was being modified, people didn't realize that was happening. And so, yes, we had a lot of overdoses. And that made, and still is, making national news. Um, and we did, we were looking at roughly two to three time increase in the number of overdoses we were doing. And we were administering a lot of Narcan at the time. Since then, uh, with the changes both in the law and also Narcan becoming available over-the-counter, that we have not responded to nearly as many opioid-related overdoses. Now, I can't say that that's because people are not doing it. Uh, Maybe they are getting, if you will, they understand that the potency of the medication that they need to cut back a little bit or that there is somebody there who has Narcan to assist them. It's a mixture of things, but our Fortunately for us, the number of overdoses that we're going to has reduced significantly. Yeah, I, it's I got still a, there. But I got a similar answer from Chief Viola. You know, he may had the same speculation: like, is it because they're right. carrying Narcan with them? Yeah. How do you, how do you know? It's too bad. Yes, it, it it's it is an unfortunate addiction. Um, maybe someday we'll be able to get rid of that scourge. But okay, uh, dispatch. So are you dispatched 100% from MacBase? You mentioned earlier that you can dispatch yourself. So yes, we are. our dispatching services is provided 100% by Milford Area Communications Center. And they've been doing that, well, ever since they became MacBase, but prior to that it was Milford. And so yes, all of our services provided by them, they receive the E911 call or if somebody calls up direct and then they will dispatch us. I mentioned that we have the ability to dispatch ourselves, that we built that into the facility such that if MacBase went down for whatever reason, we at least would be able to generate what we call our tones to activate our pagers, and we could communicate with our ambulances when they're out in Nashua, maybe not up in Manchester, but when they're definitely in Milford, we could communicate with our ambulances. Also, we built it with to keep in mind to maybe take some of the load off of MacBase, such that I mentioned ice storm earlier. If we have a significant issue or incident, some of the load we could handle directly, and I'm not talking about necessarily taking, answering phone calls or taking the 911 call, but as so much being able to communicate with the ambulances directly and say, okay, yeah, you need to stage over here or we need you to go to here or whatever to take some of that load off of MacBase. That's all our center is set up, or if you will, our um, radio system is set up for. We're not looking to take over MacBase or to, to take their place but only in a pinch or in an emergency to do those things. Now, I don't want to get into the whole issues and controversies with MacBase, but with, with the current setup, is your agency, do you have any issues with MacBase? There are two areas that I have brought up of concern that I would like to see addressed with going forward. And those are, um, first, I would like to have a second ambulance frequency, a dedicated ambulance frequency, such that we share our frequency with Wilton Ambulance. They are also dispatched on our frequency. So all of our communications from our first ambulance that's going out, our second ambulance that's out, and if Wilton has both of their ambulances out, all go on the same frequency. So we, at times, are competing for airtime to talk with our dispatch center. I would like to have, have a second frequency such that if we do have a big incident that does occur in town, we can then get off of the primary dispatch frequency because even though there's a big incident going on, somebody else is going to call in with a medical emergency. We still have to respond to other calls. So allowing us to have a second frequency to talk with our dispatch center will afford us the opportunity to declutter that one frequency and to be able to separate those two and more efficiently communicate. The other issue I would like to see addressed is that when our ambulances respond to Manchester or transport a patient up to Manchester, the Manchester facility, CMC or Elliott, we have spotty communications with them. And, in fact, having this uh, past Saturday worked, um, 7 p.m. to 11 p.m., did two transports to uh, Manchester, one to CMC and the other to the Elliott Hospital. 
And while the radio communication wasn't an issue, but there are times, though, depending on where you are, you cannot get through. I would like to see that addressed as well. So that's a, a technology issue. With that's what a technology they have. issue, correct? So it's not yep. really an operations it's, issue. It's, it's well, it's it's operations and technology, but it is not necessarily an issue with MacBase per se mm-hmm. in the structure and organization. And they could whatever. fix it. That could be fixed, but needs to be fixed. And it was something that, for the second EMS frequency, MacBase obtained one, but never made it into the console. And that was over ten years ago. And so now that frequency now has gone to the Wilton Fire Department for their communication needs. Okay. We need to address some things. The, the issues continue. Okay. But they're solvable. Yeah. All right, I just wanted to touch on quickly uh, the public versus private. As I mentioned mm-hmm. it back in the introduction back in 2005, mm-hmm. there was a, an effort to privatize. So in, in 2004, actually this came up in 2003 as part of the history, the police department was able to successfully obtain funding for a new, new police station. And so then what it came down to was the next building to be, to be built was going to be the ambulance service, recognizing that we did have a pressing facility need back then. Some citizens got together and said, why do that? Why build a million-dollar facility? Why not just go privatize the ambulance service? So that started it off. And in 2004, an effort, the selectmen said, well, let's look at this. So a Save the Ambulance Service a committee was formed, and then another committee was formed to look at privatizing. That all came together uh, at, a, at the 2005 town meeting where it was put on as a, as a warrant vote. And the voters overwhelmingly, to a 60% majority, said, no, we want to keep our own ambulance service. And so then it was looked at to possibly merge the departments. So the following year it was, okay, let's look at merging the two departments and see what efficiencies we can find there. So that went through in 2005, and then it just kind of petered out, never went anywhere. And then it was, okay, we're going to hold off on building a facility yet. And then eventually the decision was made in 2012, or excuse me, in 2010, a joint facility. Uh, we wouldn't merge the departments, but a joint facility would be built f- over by the existing fire station. That failed. The following year it came up, all right, let's build two separate facilities but le- or build one ambulance facility to start and then eventually renovate the fire station. That failed at vote. So then it became, okay, the ambulance service has a pressing need. And so then in 2012, we went forward with this facility, approved in 2013. Or excuse me, 2012 it was approved, and then the facility was built in 2013. Based on those responses, I don't believe that there will be an effort to merge the department anytime soon. Currently, um, there isn't, I'm not aware of any speculation or that being out there. The fire department now has their new renovated facility, or renovated and new portions of their facility. But their call volume is such that they respond to fire calls, rescue calls, and, and hazmats and stuff of that nature. The ambulance service responds to medical calls. Now, yes, there is some overlap in there, roughly 60 times a year that the fire department is assisting the ambulance service and vice versa. When they have a structure fire, we're assisting them. But if you want to, and just, I've said this before, so this is really no secret and I'm not trying to stir any pots here, but these are two separate agencies that do two separate things. And we run roughly 2,000 calls. They're running over 1,000 calls a year. Sure, you could combine us. There are departments that do that, but they still have to run their calls. Mm -hmm. And they're cross-manning. So if you need to make sure that you have a fire truck always ready and available, you need to have the staffing ready and available for that. But you also have to staff at least two people on an ambulance. So if you're running two ambulances, you need four people to do that. Sometimes you're paying Peter to pay Paul, and you're shifting your resources around. But what happens when you start getting more and more calls and you need to respond on multiple things? Do you have those available resources? Both agencies are manpower-intensive agencies. We're a customer service agency. We're here to help people. We need to have specific equipment and specific individuals and in specific numbers at specific certification levels. So there could be some cost savings, sure, down the road, but you still have to provide the fire service. You still have to provide the medical service. So I don't foresee that happening anytime yeah. soon. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And the only argument I could ever foresee being made is not the services, because like I said, the services, they're different services. Mm-hmm. But th- there could be savings in the facilities. 
that's why I was a big proponent. I wish that that one mm-hmm. passed when we wanted to do the, the combined building. And completely be- understand and because agree with that. as you, especially if you look at the two services right now, as the fire department grows and they start adding on full time firefighters. You know, they have their bunks over there. You've got your bunks over here. If there was one facility, that would go easier. There could there and, could be some cost savings there, and, sure. And somebody is bound to say when, when they start having five or six, you know, full-time firefighters, they may have them now, I'm not sure. People could legitimately say that, well, you know, why, why, why are we having two kitchens and two, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. two sets of dorms and all that? Sure. But I, but I understand, and you got, you're right, because you got to the point when, the ambulance needed the building. You couldn't. I mean, you. Right. I got to believe you sheared off a couple of side mirrors oh, or two. It, yeah, <laughs> we we banged a few casements and yes, yeah, some mirrors. Absolutely. So, what worries you? Anything worry you? Two areas that are of concern is just is staffing, and it's always a staffing issue. And I say that just in the sense that right now we are in a very tight employment market. I mean, we're at national lows for unemployment just in the state but also within our specific catchment area is low. And then there are limited EMS providers out there, certified EMS providers, and especially at the paramedic level, that it is difficult to attract quality personnel because we kind of poach off of each other. And I hate to say it that way, but mm-hmm. you know, if the grass is greener over there, I'm gonna jump there. And if it's not as good over here, then I'm gonna jump over there. So you know, for us to make sure that we are competitive, and I say that both in pay and benefits, uh, hours available, but also the facility is has a big, big thing to do with a nice atmosphere and a good work environment where we're all respectful of one another. We're all pulling in the same direction to do the same job that it's not, oh, I got to go to work today. It's, oh, I'm going to Milford. Okay, that's cool. I don't mind going there. That's always an area of, that, you know, you always have to stay on top of. And the other area is reimbursement. What's the federal government going to do with reimbursement for ambulance transports? And there's a big pilot program that's going on now. There's also a survey that's going to be done over the next four years of every transporting agency will be involved in. And it is very, from what I've heard, is very paper intensive. There's a lot of uh, data that the government is looking for to help set future reimbursement rates. Those are the two big areas that I am uh, am concerned about uh, going forward. Do you do much outreach to either, I guess, even the high schools or, or maybe some of the community colleges uh, to get people, so young people interested? We haven't done as good a job as we could, and we are actually looking to reverse that to actually, if possible, teach an EMT course in the Milford School District. We've been approached by the school, and we are starting to look at what we need to do as an agency to meet the accreditation standards of the education system and the education um, department um, to make sure that we can do that, to help introduce that so that we can generate, if you will, a feeder program for us to get EMTs in the door, starting out as, a, you know, as an intern, as a volunteer, and then maybe eventually if they like it and their um, schedule permits, and that's a job, a career that they would like to pursue start up as a part-time employee so i think uh i think it's getting time to wrap this up can you think of is there anything that we you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to um i would say that the one thing i would just like to say is that you know i'm proud of this organization our staff has is a tremendous staff we have a very good reputation out there both as clinical providers and as a training organization. You know, without the staff, we couldn't do this. I couldn't do this. And so I, I'm very complimentary of them. Our partners, and I say that in the sense of the fire department and the police department, we have excellent working relationship. Uh, they are very good to work with. And recently we did an EMS in the warm zone training exercise to satisfy a grant that we had received and opened up some eyes. But it also, everybody was very satisfied. Those that participated in the training were very satisfied with it and said this was great and we need to do more of it. So that's an area that we're going to be focusing on. But just working for the town and, you know, it's been a privilege. It's been an honor and I enjoy the job and it's a great, great department. Good. Well, thanks for, thanks for talking to us today. I think, oh, thank uh, you for your time. I think we uh, covered some good information. I hope so. And if anybody has questions, please, by all means, reach out to us. We also offer public education courses to include Stop the Bleed, CPR, EMT courses. And so if you need anything, feel free to call us. Great. Thank you. All right. Well, I also want to thank Chris Gentry, our GTM manager. Chris has been our audio engineer for today. 
Our theme music for today's episode was written and performed by Kevin McLeod at Competech.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on most major podcasting apps. You can also stream directly from Granitown Media's podcast page at milford.nh.gov slash community media. As always, we welcome any and all feedback or suggestions you may have for future episodes. We invite you to go to the Granitown Media's Facebook page or leave us a comment on our podcast page at soundcloud.com. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you join us for another episode of Inside Milford.